This episode has been brought to you in part by the Toronto Heschel School. You are invited to attend their open house on November 10th to discover what makes Heschel special. Visit torontoheschel.org for more details. That's Toronto, H-E-S-C-H-E-L dot org. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Mentors, your bi-weekly look at the world of Juicy Sports. Gabe, how you doing, buddy? You know, I'm doing great. Uh, it was my birthday this week. It was a lovely time. Thank you. We are nary a month from Hanukkah. Uh, you know, the time times are good. We're entering klezmer season, my friend. It is uh, true klezmer season. I, I'm excited for early Hanukkah. Uh, I think I, I mentioned to you the other day when we were hanging out that I'm very excited for Gentiles to wish me a happy Hanukkah at the end of December and get to tell them, actually, that was a month ago. So I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> well, for sure. It's it's a one time to say, you know, I remember when I was a kid, I used to love the early Hanukkah because it meant like I didn't have to wait longer for the holiday. Like the holiday was sooner. Right. And then you got like two separate holidays when they're at the same time. It's really overshadowed. But this allows us to have our own time. Sure. And then also like, you know, the statutory Christmas of, you know, Chinese food and movies and then good sales on Boxing Day uh, for those of us in Canada. We have a really great show today. We were joined by Dan Grunveld, uh, former college professional bas- college and professional basketball a, player. A Stanford man. A Stanford man. The son of longtime NBA executive Ernie Grunfeld. Uh, who has written a really, really fascinating new book called By the Grace of the Game, which traces his family's, uh, you know, journey through the Holocaust. His, his, his dad's parents were survivors and um, tracing his dad's career as an NBA player, NBA executive, his own life as a, as a Stanford collegiate athlete and professional basketball player abroad. Um, really just a great, really, really fascinating book and, and a great guest to have on the show. I think he was he was terrific. I think Ernie would be, you know, very much described as like a macher in the yeah. NBA. Like if there is, Definitely. you know, if you could define a macher, it would be like that guy. Um, and Dan has sort of had a, a, a great life playing basketball following, you know, being he's very close with his father. Talked a lot about that. Talked a lot about his grandmother's story escaping the Holocaust um, and his own basketball career, too. Um, as well, working, you know, in the Bay Area uh, uh, in uh, in uh, uh, with his second Stanford degree. It's very impressive. Really, really impressive guy and a really nice guy. Definitely. I mean, it's sort of interesting. You know, the book talks a lot, obviously, about about his dad, about Ernie Grunfeld. Um, we barely talked about it in the interview because the book is so fascinating otherwise. And, you know, the story of uh, the Holocaust and its effect on his family's life. Um, we talk talk with Dan about how, as far as we know, Ernie Grunfeld is the is the only son or the only child of a survivor to play in one of the big four professional sports leagues. So, um, pretty amazing, amazing stuff. Um, Ernie Grunfeld obviously had a had a you know I think probably 10, 12 year NBA career. People people might know know his story of his playing time. I think they did a they did a thirty for thirty about him and Bernard King. Um, They're very close friends. Yeah, maybe maybe not in the. I can't remember if it was the original thirty for thirty run, but it was it was you know maybe like eight nine years ago. Um, that's definitely a fascinating documentary. Uh, people and, should and check out. There's a pretty good Jewish geography in there. I'm not going to ruin <laughs> it for you, but it's probably the most personal one we've had yet. But before we get to that, we have some fairly exciting, you know, podcast development news here. We we would like to welcome to the Menschwarmers Mishpacha our new intern Jacob. 
Jake, Jake, we're actually on the air with Jacob right now. Welcome to the Menschwarmers. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Jake's our, our, our newest member of Mentor family, uh, interning for the Canadian Jewish News uh, as a whole, and uh, helped us out a lot with some great research on on this topic, and and uh, has been reaching out to reaching out to people, reaching out to guests. So welcome, Jacob, on on board. Uh, we we have a usual producer, Michael. He's our standard, you know, the executive director of the podcast, and so on and so forth. And from what I understand now, legally speaking, Michael is your dad. Yeah. Uh, basically haven't signed the papers yet, but that's pretty much where it's headed. Unfortunately, so, you know, Michael, while being an excellent podcast producer, like doesn't know, I would say a basketball from a hockey puck. Is that, is that fair? Is that, uh, Michael, Michael's a, an occasional basketball fan. And I think that's about it. Right. He's a good, he's a good ultimate player. Yeah. He's giving us the thumbs up. He doesn't even want to want to talk about his, his lack of uh, sports fandom. But <laughs> he's, he, he, we're getting, we're getting the, the, you know, the slit throat sign, like the kill this conversation. So maybe, maybe we can move back to put, Put a little bit of the uh, the excitement on Jacob. Jacob, I yeah. see you have a jersey in the back. It is is that a Zach Hyman? It's a Taylor Hall, actually. I wish I have a Zach Hyman Leafs jersey. Actually. Oh, nice. Uh, mm-hmm. I hope you listen to the episode where he was on our show. Yeah, you'll have to get a, an eighteen uh, Hyman Oilers like Burger Shack does. A- anyways, Jake, thanks so much for for uh, being a part of our team, and uh, we'll have to check in check in later again. Um, before we get to our interview with Dan, uh, Gabe, we should talk about recent pretty big Jewish sports news, which is, you know, the most Jewish World Series ever. We've talked about this a bunch, but yeah. it ended up being a World Series that featured not just three, but four Jewish baseball players because uh, backup Houston catcher Garrett Stubbs made it into game six. Is So we talk a lot about, you know, the the Mike Jacobs All-Stars, the players with Jewish names who are are not Jewish. I would say Garrett Stubbs is the would be the inverse of that. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, I don't know. You know but, you're rowdy yeah, to Garrett, Yeah, exactly. Garrett especially. But, you know, as we know, Jews come in all shapes and sizes and colors and creeds and uh, and all kinds of names as well. Um, this is, we, this we is sh- very true. But a, a big muzzle tov to Max Fried and Jock Peterson, the, you know, menches on the winning uh, Atlanta Braves. Jock yep. just got his second straight World Series ring. Um, and now he has some uh, beautiful uh, pearls to go yeah. with it. Yeah, I think Jock sort of stood out as one of the biggest personalities on the Braves team, um, wearing his pearls and, uh, you know, dyed blonde hair, smoking cigars right after the victory. That that was pretty great. Um, we should mention as well that there was, there was an amazingly Jewish play when Max Fried was pitching in game six that he when he was pitching to um, uh, Alex Bregman, Bregman flew out to Jock Peterson and Wright. Um, so an all Jewish, you know, uh, pitcher hitter put out was pretty amazing. And, uh, you know, a, a, as everyone mentioned, it was the first time a Jew, two Jews faced off in the world series, um, two more Jewish, uh, world series champions, obviously Jock Peterson already had one, but, uh, you know, just a very, a very all in all Jewish world series. And I think we could, you could see the amount of cavelling online, um, for Jewish sports watchers, how meaningful it was to see all this. And, and sort of marking the occasion. Baseball's baseball is a sport that's sort of marked by you know, a, 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 you know, knowing what the history is and and seeing this sort of first first time ever Jewish uh, Jewish face off was was I think very important to people. We got a lot of of tags of you know there was a moment where Max Friedman pitched to Alex Bregman who flew out to Jock Peterson. You know, is that the most Jewish moment in the World Series? I I think you know. To bring it even full circle, the only reason Garrett Stubbs made it into the World Series is, you know, he was the third string catcher, the middle string catcher, the second string catcher uh, 
uh, MLB veteran named Jason Castro, uh, whose wife is Jewish. Oh. Jason Castro was unable to play. So Stubbs stepped in. Um, but Jason Castro has a little Jewish connection there, too. Wow, that's very cool. So it goes even deeper. If you include wives, maybe the Jewish the Jewish uh, uh, contingent of your average <laughs> World Series would go up a little bit more. And uh, I don't know if you saw it at the, the parade the other day, but, you know, Jock wrote a, a, an article right before the, the World Series about, you know, he wrote a Players' Tribune article talking about one of, one of the lines was about, you know, hanging out with the pitchers and the pitchers were asking him why he was on their bus. And he said, you know, y'all are the... Uh, I don't think we swear this much on the podcast. Y'all are the MFers who are going to win us a World Series, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> made a little call ba- callback to that at the uh, victory parade. Um, you know, yelled out, "You know, we might not be a super team. We've only won 88 games. Might have had our share of injuries and slipped below some people's radars. Taking an unconventional path to get to the stage, but we also just might be those MFers." So he really you know, it, it punctuated the the brave celebration, I think. And and I think just a, a great guy to have on team. I think he's a free agent again. So it's sort of like, yeah, if Jock just wants to keep traveling team to team for the next 10 years, winning World Series, Kanana Hora, right? He's a real glue guy. Is there like a Absolutely. Yiddish term for a glue guy? That, that Jake, Jake, uh, the intern, that'll, that'll be on your, <laughs> on your list assignment. of things to research. Find us a Yiddish word for glue. <laughs> and, and I'm quickly doing a quick Google of how do you say sticky and Yiddish? Uh, it's just spelling out sticky for me in Yiddish. Yeah, so that's not, not so helpful. Oh, klepik. It's like a, maybe a kleptomania sticks to your hands. Anyway, uh, we're, we're very proud of, of Jock and Max um, and happy to chat about the World Series with them anytime they're interested. But let's uh, uh, get to our interview with uh, Mr. Grunfeld, why don't we? Well, we're very lucky today to be joined by Dan Grunfeld. Dan, how are you doing? Doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, we've asked you to come on to, to talk to us a little bit about your new book that's coming out shortly, uh, By the Grace of the Game. Uh, and I'll give the full subtitle because I think it's a, it's a good one and very revelatory about what the book's about. The Holocaust, A Basketball Legacy, and an Unprecedented American Dream. Uh, Dan, can you tell our, our listeners a little bit about who you are and what the book's about? Absolutely. So Dan Grunfeld, former professional basketball player. So I played at Stanford collegiately, eight years professionally all over the world. Uh, my dad was a longtime NBA player and executive, Ernie Grunfeld. So he's very well known in the basketball world and in the sports world in general. But few people know that he's the only player in NBA history whose parents survived the Holocaust. So that was my grandparents. I um, mean, thankfully, my grandmother is 96 years old, lives 25 minutes away from me in the Bay Area. She cooked for me yesterday, so I'm eating oh, wow. food today, which is a good thing. Uh, but my book is kind of an intergenerational family story about how does a family get from point A to point B, and then what's the effect on subsequent generations. So tell the story all the way from the Holocaust to the NBA, and then my story with basketball as well. This this is somewhat of a uh, you know sideways but thematically relevant story, which is that I found out today, and nobody else from our side knows this, but our dads, Dan, actually went to high school together. Um, yeah, exactly. Which is a very sort of Jewish way to bring in this story. Um, and you know, I guess my, my dad's a little bit younger than yours. He said he was a couple of years ahead. Um, although one of their teachers is a close family friend of ours, was a close family friend of ours. Uh, one of the teachers that our parents both had, but now, you know, I guess almost 50 years later, we are talking on this podcast. So there's an intergenerational story to start this. That's so cool. Well, I write a lot about Forest Hills in the book. 
Um, you'll have to share the name of the teacher so I can tell my dad. I'm sure he'll remember. But Absolutely. that's so cool. This is um, the earliest into an interview that we've ever devolved into Jewish geography. It was going to happen anyway. Why? Why? Why wait? Right. I think it's a forward evolution, not a de- not a de evolution, but a forward yeah. evolution. But I'll, I'll I'll send you the email name of Mrs. Nalvin uh, later I got on. It. I'm going to ask tonight. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I love it. Her son certainly listens to this show, so he'll be thrilled to hear that. Shout out to the Nalvins. Dan, Dan, I'm glad I'm glad you brought up your your grandmother cooking for you because you know this this book is about you know family history, the Holocaust. And, and, and sports and, and basketball career as well. But I would say also reads a bit like a, a recipe book of, of some great, you know, Jewish Hungarian recipes. I, I won't even try the pronunciation on some of them, but, uh, you know, very it's just interesting to see that perspective of, uh, I think, a perspective shared, shared by a lot of Jews of being fattened up by a grandmother. 100%. <laughs> I've lived that life. And uh, my grandma, we all think, right, our grandmothers are the best cooks, as we should. Um, my, she, my grandma's amazing. And and you, you read the book and you know this food in my family is really a vessel of love, you know, because sure. these are the dishes that my my great grandmother made for my grandmother before she was killed in the war. Right. So not only do we eat it and love it and bond over it, but I think there's a deeper history to it, too. So can you tell us a little bit? And again, I, I appreciate that it's hard to, you know, um, summarize all these things, but a little bit about your grandmother's um, uh, survival through the Holocaust and, and what, what her journey through that was like. Absolutely. So my grandmother grew up in an Orthodox Jewish family in rural Romania. So on the border of Romania and Hungary, it's Transylvania. Uh, she was one of 10 children. I uh, grew up in a very happy household. She happened to be visiting a sister in Budapest when the Nazis invaded. And so um, she got a letter in the mail from my great grandfather. And she, my grandmother was with her sister at the time. And it said, come home immediately. She packed her suitcases. They were ready to get on the train to come home. And they got another letter that day that said, if you can stay where you are. And that's the last correspondence that my grandmother had with her father. The whole family was taken to Auschwitz uh, and my grandma had a chance to survive. And so she was in Budapest on the run. And Raul Wallenberg, you know, Swedish diplomat is known as one of the greatest heroes of the Holocaust, credited for saving roughly 100,000 Jews. My grandmother was one of them. So he issued false documentation, Schutz passes, which saved my grandma for some time. And she also risked her life to obtain 17 passes for other people. So I always tell folks like, my grandmother's my hero, but she's also a hero. She literally risked her life to save others. Um, she was eventually captured by the Nazis, placed in the Budapest ghetto. And uh, at the end of the war, they saw, the Nazis didn't come in the ghetto, but at the end of the war, they saw the Nazis enter with machine guns and word quickly spread that they were gonna exterminate all the Jews in the ghetto. And my grandmother and her brother, who was also there, they ran into an attic space and hid. And they were there for 10 minutes and 20 minutes and an hour, two hours. Uh, eventually nothing happened. Romanian and Russian soldiers came and liberated the ghetto and my grandmother was freed. And it wasn't until 40 years later when they made a movie about Raul Wallenberg's life that she learned that it was Wallenberg who went to the gates of the ghetto and pleaded with the guard and said, don't kill these people. The war is over. Um, And so he saved her life twice during the war, but it took her 40 years to to figure out that there was two times. And and you mentioned a second ago, I just want to go back to that, that there's, you know, I guess a legacy of 17 other families that your grandmother helped save, you know, in working on the book, as you look through a multi-generational storyline, did you find any of them? My grandmother wouldn't even be able to find them because they were just people who needed help. You know, she happened to get a note that said there was a long line to get to the front of the, dip, the, the doors of the embassy to get a pass. And she got a note that said, you can come to the front of the line because she had forgotten some papers and they never took the note from her. So she kept using the note to go to the front of the line and get pass after pass. Initially, it was just for her sisters. So she got two passes for her sisters, but 
you know, why stop there? So, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and she told me, because I, I asked, obviously, I did a year and a half of research. So I just asked every question I could think of. And I said, did you get them for your friends? Who'd you get them for? And she said, you know, some some people I gave them to were friends that I knew and some were just strangers who needed help. And, you know, that's kind of yeah, it would be amazing to, to figure out who those people were. I'm not sure we'll be, ever be able to. Uh, moving on a little bit past where obviously your, your grandparents moved to America and, and your dad, your dad as well, who was who was born in Romania, uh, moved to America as well and sort of. It, it, it's sort of it's sort of um, amazing to think of you know one generation surviving the Holocaust, fleeing from Nazis, you know living out the war in the ghetto, uh, in the Budapest ghetto, and the next generation you know playing in front of twenty thousand people at Madison Square Gardens and and you know playing playing basketball around the NBA. That's why I wrote the book. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's a it's a really improbable story. Uh, you know, my dad grew up under communism, came to America when he was nine years old. You know, he had an older brother who was diagnosed with leukemia upon arrival in the States, and he died within a year, which is a great tragedy in my family. And so for my dad, as a kid in New York City and Forest Hills, Queens, uh, he just went to the playground because that's what all the kids in the neighborhood did, neighborhood did, you know, to learn English, to make friends. And he just started playing basketball. And uh, it's funny because, you know, I, I was a basketball player myself and I grew up so differently. And I, I speak pretty honestly about that in the book. I grew up with so much privilege. My dad was the general manager of the Knicks. I had you know, examples and resources and all these things. Uh, when I was playing basketball, my mom drove me to every game. My dad was working with me right. on the weekends. For my dad, my grandparents never saw him play basketball until he was a junior in high school. You know, they were immigrants wow. in New York working. And, you know, that I tell the story in the book, they just got a call at their fabric store that said, hey, you know, from, from my dad's high school coach said, you have to see this kid play. And uh, yeah, he was an All-American high school, college, and the rest was history. And, and, and at six foot six, I think probably probably the tallest Jew in New York in the, in the 1960s. <laughs> he, he was amongst them for sure. Uh, yeah, listen, he was he was he was a big dude. He's a strong dude. And the game just clicked for him. And and you talk, I mean, obviously we go you go into your sort of history in the book and, and how that became you. But, you know, when did you decide how did your career sort of help itself first to, to become a basketball player and then to take your shot playing pro and then going to, to write this book, you know, did it ever occur to you? Maybe you want to go down the executive path that your father might have, if your father did. For sure. So regarding my basketball career, I was, and I was born around the NBA schedule, right? Like literally my, my birth was scheduled to, to coincide between two road trips of my dad. So he could be there for my birth and my bris. Right. So, I mean, I was literally born into the game. <laughs> Uh, and people listening to this could appreciate that. You know, this is, a you know, I, I was expecting you to say that you were circumcised, uh, you know, in the training room at Madison Square Garden. <laughs> it wouldn't have surprised me. It could have been the trainer doing it. Right. <laughs> they didn't even need a moil. Um, but that's all to say, right. The game is just kind of part of my DNA and what kid doesn't want to be like his dad. You know, so I always uh, I always grew up knowing that, hey, I, I want to do this. And to my dad's credit, he never once forced the game of basketball on me and my mom too. They just kind of supported me and gave me space to do the things that I wanted to, but I just wanted to do that. And so my, my basketball career always flowed naturally from that. Upon retirement, of course, I've, I always considered, you know, doing what my dad has done for so many years, which is being an executive in the NBA. Um, I went to business school upon retirement and working in tech currently, but listen, the game is always a big part of my life. I have many friends in the industry and, you know, you never know.
Just touching on on something you just talked about, your parents and and uh, and pushing into the game. I, I really loved the anecdote about your dad uh, showing up in Milwaukee and asking, you know, are there any Jewish women around who who, who might be interested in me? And immediately being set up with, uh, you know, someone saying, oh, you know, what about uh, Larry's or Jerry's daughter? Um, right. You know, I think she's 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 single. And being set up with your mom, I thought I thought that was a very funny and uh, yeah. you know specifically Jewish anecdote. A hundred percent. That's how it happens, you know. And uh, yeah, my dad was introduced to a Jewish family in Milwaukee, you know, when, when he was drafted by the Bucks, and literally that's you know one of the first questions: twenty-two year old Jewish guy in Milwaukee. Hey, any nice Jewish girls? And my uh, my mom's dad was an original owner of the Milwaukee Bucks. This is when it was more of a community, you know, endeavor. Um, and back so, when back when you could just be like a successful lawyer and own a part of a team instead of like, you know, you started the biggest software company in the world kind of thing. That's exactly right. So my grandfather, well, he was a successful lawyer in, in Milwaukee. And so, <laughs> um, yeah, that's right. And uh, and so, yeah, th- that was the first name that this family mentioned, Nancy Kahn. Right. And so uh, here we are all these years later. Uh, congrats, I guess we should say about the, the Bucks recent championship. Does that uh, resonate for you? Are you a Bucks fan at, 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 in your own rooting interest or? Has the family yeah, tie listen, know, gone away? I, I root for the team because I have friends there and my family has very deep ties there. You know, that's where my mom's born and raised and I'm right. my grandfather. So I, I do root for them, but it's, you know, since my dad has been at different teams and we've moved around a lot, I've had a lot of different kind of affiliations, but uh, I, I, I was very happy to see the Bucks win it. It was awesome. I, I want to go back to a second to talking about your dad's sort of upbringing and, and and yours in, in New York, I'd imagine that his, you know, his life of basketball on the playground was a little bit more Jewish than basketball is now. Um, and, you know, of, of all the Jews to come out of, you know, New York and, and Chicago and the cities back then, you know, in the 60s and 70s, it's amazing to know that his parents were the only Holocaust survivors. You know, he's the only child of survivors, like you mentioned. But we talk a lot about on the show that, you know, basketball 50 years ago was fairly Jewish. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just found that to be an amazing, amazing story. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Like, and you know, you read the book, I, I talk about in the book, the roots of basketball and Judaism, how they intersect. And, you know, of course the first basket in NBA history was scored by Ozzie Schechtman, right. you know, who's a Jew and, and all, and it was the New York Knicks versus the Toronto Huskies and all five starters for the Knicks were Jewish. Um, so yeah, there mm-hmm. was, listen, Jews were very prominent in basketball in the early days. And uh, you know, it's the, the tradition is still there. Maybe there haven't been as many Jewish NBA players uh, nowadays as there have been in the past, but uh, you know, the tradition is still there. Well, we chatted last time on our podcast. It was right after they released the NBA, the 75th anniversary team and, and Dolph Shays who had been on the 50th anniversary team as well was, uh, was on the list and, and people online were, were having a bit of fun with, I think his inclusion, because, you know, if you get, if you can find footage of Dolph Shays playing, it's, it's very much of a different era of like, you know, two handed shots and, you know, him being a six six eight center who who shot thirty eight percent from the floor, it's not exactly up to the modern standards. So, you know, I I I don't know. I guess there's a reason why why Jews Jews aren't dominating the game anymore. But it's it is amazing to see a time when when you know the game was ours kind of thing. I hear that, but I will say it's hard to compare players from different generations because even if you look back in the '80s when my dad played, and you look at what guys were doing, it pales in comparison to some of the things that are happening now. But I'm always a big believer of like, you have to make those comparisons for like in, inside of those generations. And when Dolph Shays retired from the NBA, he was the leading scorer in NBA history. Right. Right. You know, so n- nothing more, nothing more to be said for me. <laughs> hey, and- look, we're, we're, we're a Jewish sports podcast. We're definitely team Dolph. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I get that. <laughs> no doubt. 
when when you were playing, you know, from from your time in the NBA and overseas, were you ever was there ever another Jewish player on the teams you played on? Well, in Israel, for sure. Right? Yes, I we would we were getting there. But yeah, I, so I played professionally in Israel, of course, but uh, no, not not at not at like the the ultra competitive levels that there weren't. Yeah, not not in college and not professionally. Aside from well, Israel. Sorry, go do ahead. Do you feel Jim. like you stood out? In terms of, or do you mean, did I stand out or did I not fit in? You know, that's a, that's your interpretation. Dealer's choice. Yeah, there you go. It's interesting. So my rookie year in Germany, I played for a team in the first division Germany, which by the way, is a whole other thing. And I wrote this in the book. I'm probably the only professional player who had to call his grandmother to ask permission to sign his first contract. Right. Right. And I did. My agent <laughs> called me today and I got a great situation for you. I said, oh, I'm psyched. Where is he? He goes, he's in Germany. Said, okay, let me let me call my grandma. And I did that. Yeah. And um, you know, her being the most amazing person in the world as she is, she said to me, she calls me Tatala, right? Which is like a Yiddish term, which I'm sure a lot of listeners have their own that their grandparents call them. She said, Tatala, sons are not responsible for the sins of their fathers. Right. And she said, go to Germany, have a great experience there, which I did. Uh, but that, that year we had a lot of Americans on the team. And I had a teammate who wanted to say a prayer before the game. And he pulled me aside and he, and he kind of asked my permission in a sense because he knew I was Jewish. He said, hey, is, are you comfortable? Which I thought was very considerate. I said, of very course, man, you know, do it. But listen, there, there's at, at times certainly, you know, a little bit of a, you know, a different feel just because I was the only Jewish player. Right. You know, that's that's much more considerate than what we've heard from some other athletes, which is, yeah. that, uh, you know, whoever was the team, whoever had sort of uh, taken on the role as the team chaplain had tried to convert them at some point, especially especially in baseball. That, that's a, a story we've heard. Uh, and football too, I guess. Um, so what, one other thing I want to ask you about, um, the foreword to the book is, is written by Ray Allen, who I think has been very, very public in his, um, you know, role in terms of Holocaust education, being on the board of the, uh, the National Holocaust Museum. Um, was that, uh, I, I, you know, we, you can talk about Ray Allen and your connection with him and, and, and his connection to the Holocaust, but is that something that, that you ever discuss with fellow players or people, other people in the game? Um, who you met that, you know, their understanding of the Holocaust and, and, and what, if any, sort of, you know, research or um, interest they had in that? It's not something I talked about often when I was sure. playing. And it's not something my dad discussed very much either. Uh, I did, when I played in Germany, you know, my best friend on the team was a German from Berlin. He was a national team player. And uh, him, he and I had some deep conversations. And I, and I write about this, right? Because his family was on the other side of that war. And so, you know, he has a history that he carries too. And so we kind of discussed those things, but it's not something I talked about that much. And, you know, I, Ray writes this in his foreword, you know, Ray and my, my dad was a general manager of the Bucks when Ray was a star player there. So I've known Ray for a long time and as great as a, of a basketball player as he was, he's even better human being. I mean, he, he's truly a remarkable person and he didn't know about my dad's parents, you know, they, right. and he'd been to our house and they'd spent hours together and I know Ray well. But it, it just hadn't been something that my dad talked about much or, you know, that I really talked about much. And so it was, first of all, amazing for him to step up for my family, for the story. And uh, he's been an amazing advocate of Holocaust education and remembrance. But, you know, it yeah, that, that hadn't been something that I talked about that mm -hmm. much with teammates. I, I think, you know, I should say, I mean, I think it's a really valuable project. And, you know, it's a great story of, you know, an American family, what it means to, you know, where you come from and, and what the what that means to someone. And, you know, a, a, a great narrative of a, a holocaust survivor story and sadly you know the fewer and fewer survivors left uh it's amazing to be able to get this you know get these stories on paper and available to people to to you know really understand what it means i'm grateful i appreciate it 
you know, my grandma, I said, she's 96. I'm really lucky for so many reasons, but she, her memory is like as sharp as they come. So when I did the research, I was, I was digging in and asking her really specific questions. And I mean, so I'm, I think the book benefited from how amazing my grandma is because she was able to provide these really, really vivid details that I tried to convey in the story. And so, um, yeah, they're, these stories are priceless and particularly for the Jewish people. And my grandma is always kind of when I, as I was growing up and even today as an adult has stressed the importance of telling the stories because if we don't, no one else will, you know? And so it, it's just, you know, the really my mission to, to share that story. So, so others know. I just want to mention a, a quote here that you mentioned in the book while we're on the subject of the Holocaust here. You, you say there are four major sports leagues in the United States, the NBA, the NFL, the NHL, and MLB. Of all the players who've played in all those leagues, my dad, talking about Ernie Grunfeld, uh, is believed to be the only one whose parents survived the Holocaust. Um, I, I, you know, I think it's, it, that's really an amazing thing. It's, a, it's an amazing thing to highlight. As far as I can tell, I think you're, I think you're right. And I'm sure you did the research into this. Listen, it's impossible I, to know the answer for sure. I, I talked to every, uh, every league, every <laughs> historian, every Jewish sports historian, no one could find anyone, but that's why I said it's believed to be because right. you never know. And it wasn't only Jewish people who were affected by the Holocaust. Yeah, yeah, somehow you, know, so, you missed us in that research. Just saying. <laughs> you didn't return my emails, man. Come on. I was trying to get in there. Um, yeah. But I, I would say I, I don't think it's a it's a challenge per se, but I would say that if anyone does know of any anyone else who is the child of survivors, we you know, definitely be interested in hearing it. And I think, you know, the Jewish uh, you know, sports fan community will will find those people if, if they know of them, they'll they'll let us know. But I think it's it's such an interesting thing to think about. I mean, you know, we've talked before on our podcast about um, the disruption of World War II and the Holocaust on, on Jewish lives and Jewish lives in sports, you know, Olympians from that era, athletes from that era who are. Uh, taken away for, for in their prime, but you know it's it's interesting to see just sort of the, the legacy of survivors and and their kids and and whether they've been able to you know be involved in sports in those ways. And I and you know because you read the book, my my grandfather was one of those athletes because right. he was a world ranked ping pong player. Right, mm. he was really an amazing ping pong player. He was also <laughs> kind of a semi professional soccer player. I, I think the pros like to call it table tennis. <laughs> That's a fair point, man. That's a fair point. <laughs> um, um, that's, it's very interesting to hear you come from such a, uh, you know, legacy of athletics and, and sports involvement and, and something we hear from a lot of athletes and especially Jewish ones is that there's a lot of somewhat of a community pressure to to show sort of a, a maybe powerful is the wrong word, but a more athletic side of Judaism than a lot of the rest of the world seems to see us. Um, was that something that you or your dad or your grandfather ever lived with? I think I can't speak for my grandfather. I know that my dad was very proud to be a Jewish athlete. He wore number 18 for the Knicks. Right. You know, obviously mm -hmm. that's a very intentional choice. Uh, for he probably me, got a lot of fans very quickly that way. Uh, uh, yeah, 100%. Ernie Grunfeld, <laughs> number 18 yeah. for the Knicks. That yeah. worked. Um, but yeah, I mean, listen, I think that there always is a little bit of, of, a, of an edge to you because of our history. And for me growing up with knowing what my grandmother went through and, you know, myself experiencing anti-Semitism uh, and kind of some of the stereotypes around Jews not being great athletes. Yeah. You take a person a little bit. And I was actually in a class in college where we were talking about stereotypes of different you know, groups of people. And someone, when we mentioned Jews, someone said on athletic, 
you know, and I actually made a comment, you know, because at the time I was, <laughs> hey, I play I, for the basketball team. <laughs> not only that, I, I was a first team all pack 10 player at the time. Right. And I, and I, and I let them know that, you know, because so it did, it did kind of like strike a chord with me. And yeah, listen, I, I we're proud to be athletes. We're proud to be Jewish athletes. Yeah. Re- reading the stories about your dad uh, playing for the Knicks wearing number 18, it, it's sort of, it's sort of mind boggling to think that the Knicks haven't really had a Jewish player since. Um, I mean, obviously, Amari has converted to Judaism mm-hmm. since since retiring. And when he first went to the Knicks, that was, I think, the genesis of his interest in, in his own maybe Jewish heritage and, and being involved in that. But the, the failure to sort of capture that audience, I think, is is sort of amazing because you, you'd be the you'd be the most popular Nick, I think, if, if you were, you know, if they if they could trade for Denny of Dia or something like that, he'd probably be the most popular Nick on the team. Hundred percent. I mean, huge Jewish population in New York City. Basketball in New York City is, is a way of life. Uh, and so I agree with you. Well, uh, I think we should probably end it there, Dan. Thanks. Thanks so much for giving us your time. This book was really a great read. Um, I think it comes out at the end of the month. Is that, is that correct? That's right. It's a, it's a, it comes out November 30th available for pre-order now, anywhere people get their books. I'd be grateful just to, you know, for people to experience this, the, uh, the story and, you know, it's my honor to tell it really, because what my grandmother, my father went through so I could have the opportunities I do. It was something that I, I needed to tell. So I'm grateful for the support. thanks again to Dan Grunfeld for joining us. Uh, you know, really just a great read. And, uh, you know, please check out the grace of the, for the grace of the game uh, whenever you have a chance. Um, Gabe, there's been some other uh, basketball news on the on the women's side. I think I think we should talk about how did the uh, had the WNBA fi- finals go for. Uh, so, unfortunately, our our one of our God, yeah, is there a, you know, a well-known <laughs> goat Sue Bird did not win. Um, the the NBA champ- WNBA championship this year. She was the reigning championship last year. They lost this year. Uh, it was won by the Chicago Sky. Um, okay. Which is, you know, they don't uh, uh, actually, unfortunately, they don't, you know, have any Jewish players, but they are owned by a Jewish man, uh, businessman Michael Alter. Okay. Um, you know, he, he is a commercial real estate tycoon who also is the owner and chairman of the Chicago Sky. So a big muzzle tove to uh, Mr. Alter. Um, but you know, it, it, it was a very exciting WNBA season. Um, no Jews to celebrate other than the ownership. Uh, but you know, good for them. And there might be another Jewish owner, uh, coming to the WNBA as well. I mean, there was a story the other day that, uh, Drake wants to bring a WNBA team to Toronto. Maybe uh, that would be Hey, if Drake could get involved in the WNBA, I think a lot of people would be very happy with that. Sure. Um, especially because, you know, he'd be a great, he was a big ambassador for the Toronto Raptors. Maybe him and some of the Jewish WNBA stars, we could recruit Sue Bird to play for the Toronto team. <laughs> uh, that that would be pretty great, I think, as well. Um, I think it would be great. I mean, I think the city could could absolutely support another another basketball team, a WNBA team. Like, look at the way the Raptors 905 has, like, become a become a thing in recent years, the G League team. And, oh, uh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. uh, but, I mean, I think you get – I'm just going to keep naming. You bring in Sue Bird, you bring in Alicia Clark, you make Nancy Lieberman the coach, <laughs> and and we've got the most Jewish WNBA team there is. All right, next time, next time we get Drake on the on the line, we'll have to pitch that to him. <laughs> we'll have to tell him about all of this. Yeah, uh, I'd like to mention as well that uh, this episode has been brought to you by the Toronto Heschel School. Uh, you're invited to attend their open house on November 10th to find out what makes Heschel special. Visit torontoheschel.org for more details. Is is the Heschel School still across the road from Amazing Donuts? Uh, I have no idea. I'm going to say no.
Hmm. Have they moved on from from Adath Israel? Are I they think Amazing new... Donuts might have moved on. Yes. Okay. Our, our we're we're getting we're getting it news live from our intern that the Heschel School is no longer inside Adath Israel. Yeah, I think that's correct. It's um, at Wilmington and Bathurst, I believe. Oh, there uh, you go. Did you go to Heschel, Jake? I I actually I went to Leo Beck. I know uh, I have friends that went to Heschel though. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. This is this is the other kind of Jewish geography. Just literally, where are the Jewish schools located? <laughs> Uh, anyways, until next time, we're, we're brought to you as always by the Canadian Jewish News. Uh, you can read everything that the Canadian Jewish News puts out for free, no paywall at the cjn.ca. Listen to our great slate of podcasts. You know, we were, we were Gabe, we were, we were lucky to be on uh, uh, the CJN Daily last week to celebrate their 100th episode. That was great. Uh, if you're listening to this on a podcast app, please uh, like and subscribe to the podcast. Uh, if you're listening to this on the CJN's website, please ask one of your children or nieces and nephews how to listen to podcasts on your phone, and they'll show you how. And you can like and subscribe to the Menschwarmers there. Thanks and again follow to- us on Twitter at Menschwarmers. Thanks again to Dan Grunfeld for joining us. And we hope all of you have a wonderful, you know, uh, what month is this? Adar? No, we're not in Adar. We hope you all have a wonderful couple of weeks until Hanukkah. Um, we'll, get, we'll get the intern on figuring out what Jewish month it is. <laughs> Thanks again. See you next time. The Limud Toronto Festival takes place on Sunday, November 21st. Limud features educators, performers, authors, activists, and innovators from around the world. The Limud Festival of Jewish Learning celebrates creativity, diversity, inclusivity, and discussion. Everyone is welcome. All tickets to Limud are pay what you can. Learn more at limud.ca.